Hey everyone, it's Pacific. Not too much to talk about this week, but a reminder. If you have suggestions, please keep sending them in. The best way to reach us is either by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by sending us a message or tweeting at us at InsidiousPod on Twitter. So far, we've had a ton of great suggestions from the Gainesville Ripper to Ed Gein uh, to many, many more cannibals, UFO abductees, and everything else in between. But if there's a story that you want us to investigate, let us know. And without further ado, this week's episode. In 2013, director Rennie Harlan and writer Vikram Wheat released Devil's Pass, a found footage horror film about a group of American students investigating a famous missing persons case in the harsh mountains of Russia. On its release, the film received mixed reviews that compared it to The Blair Witch Project and said that the film was often hilarious, but probably not intentionally so. A large portion of the criticism pointed out that the fictional story of the film paled in comparison to the true story it was based on. That's right. The mystery at the center of Devil's Pass is based on actual events, which captivated researchers and mystery hobbyists alike for decades. To truly understand what happened, or what people think might have happened, we need to go back to the year 1959, to a group of experienced young hikers who disappeared under strange circumstances with no clear explanation in sight. The case has been the subject of discussion for over 60 years, as heartbreaking and tragic as it is curious. In spite of contentious debate and wild theories, only one thing has ever been certain. Something terrible happened to them up in those mountains. This is the story of nine people who trekked into the Urals never to return, and the disturbing mystery of the Dyatlov Pass incident. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. On January 23, 1959, a group of students from the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Yekaterinburg, called Sverdlovsk at the time, hopped on board a late-night train en route to the Ural Mountains. They were headed off on a cross-country skiing trip, taking a break from their studies for a bit of adventure and excitement, the adrenaline of sport mixed with the rush of the cold air. The group of eight men and two women was led by Igor Dyatlov, a fifth-year radio engineering student and experienced skier. The rest of the group included Zinyaida, a 20-year-old radio engineering student, Yuri Doroshenko, a 21-year-old studying power economics, Alexander, a 24-year-old studying nuclear physics, and Yuri Krivonyshenko, Rustam, and Nicholas, all 23 and studying engineering. Lyudmila Dobinina and Yuri Yudin also joined, both economics students in their early 20s. The oldest of the bunch was Semyon Zolotaryev, a 38-year-old World War II veteran and sports instructor. The train voyage up to the mountains was filled with music, laughter, and ordinary road trip shenanigans. Lyudmila described one particular bit of the trip in her diary, writing, In the train, we all sang songs accompanied by a mandolin. Then out of the blue, this really drunk guy came up to our boys and accused them of stealing a bottle of vodka. He demanded it back and threatened to punch them in the teeth. But he couldn't prove anything, and eventually he got lost. We sang and sang, and no one even noticed how we slipped into a discussion about love, and kisses in particular. Huh. Singing, an argument with a belligerent drunk stranger, and talk about kissing? Nothing about this group or their voyage so far was out of place for any average group of college students. The group made several stops along the way to rest and mail letters back home. In Serov, Zinaida sent a light-hearted letter to her family. 
We're going camping, ten of us, and it's a great bunch of people. I have all the warm clothes I need, so don't worry about me. How are you? Has the cow calved yet? I love her milk. They even took time for a bit of art and culture. On January 25th, after a night in Vizhe and a trip to the cinema, Lyudmila wrote in her diary, We are extremely lucky. Symphony in Gold was showing at the Village Club. The image was a bit fuzzy, but that didn't spoil our pleasure at all. Yurka Krivonoshinko, sitting next to me, was smacking his lips and ooing with delight. This is real happiness, and it is hard to put into words. The music is just fabulous. The film really lifted our spirits. Igor was unrecognizable. He tried to dance and even started singing old Jackie Joe. Finally, they caught a right to a logging camp called the 41st Settlement. There, the group befriended the lumberjacks, gathering around a stove for heat and discussing film. They relished the comforts of the logging camp, knowing that this would be their last night sleeping in beds before they switched to tents in harsher conditions. The next day, they set up on their skis, making their way through the snow. Between the weather and the difficult terrain, the group realized that they would need a bit of extra help and hired a horse-drawn sled to carry their supplies as they went. At this point, Yuri Yudin's sciatic nerve began to trouble him, and he could not continue with the others. Instead, he took the sled back. Such a pity, Zinaida wrote in her diary, sad to see her friend go. He had no idea at the time, but this inconvenient nerve pain was a blessing in disguise. He would be the only member of the party to come back out of the mountain alive. One member down, the group continued towards their planned destination, Mount Ortorten, a forbidden mass of land whose name means mountain with swirling winds, in language of the Monsi, the indigenous people of the region. They skied along the Aspia River, using it as a guide before they began to climb up the mountain itself. As the sun dipped down below the horizon, the cold turned bitter. Zinaida burned her mittens and Yuri's jacket in the campfire to keep warm, in spite of Yuri's protests. Things were tense enough between the two already. They had been a couple once, but Yuri had broken up with her prior to the trip. She had originally fallen in love with him on another trip, after watching him chase a brown bear back into the woods wielding nothing but a geologist's hammer. Now, traveling with him but no longer his girlfriend, she felt awkward. In a letter to a friend at the time, she wrote, I really don't know how I'll feel. It's really hard, because we are together and yet we're not together. Still, even though they were no longer together romantically, they were here braving the Urals for better or for worse. On the night of February 1st, the students pitched their tent on the eastern slope of Kolatz Yakel, or Dead Mountain, only 300 meters from its peak. They dug a shallow pit in the snow to protect their tent from the wind and settled down to camp. No one but the lost can be entirely certain what happened next, but it seems that this is where disaster struck. Upon their departure, Igor had promised the sports club at school that he would send them a message once the group had made it back to their base. This should have been around February 12th. When the day came and went, with no word from Igor, no one thought much of it. The weather had gotten nasty on the mountain, and it was assumed that their trip back had simply been delayed. But after another eight days passed and there was still no message, the group's families began to worry. A group of student volunteers formed a search party and set out to look for the missing nine. Among them was a young man named Mikhail Sharavin. Mikhail and the rest of the volunteers piled into a helicopter which flew them out to the region where the group had been traveling. There they split up into groups and followed ski tracks and any other signs of life they could find. As he walked, Mikhail spotted something poking out of the snow. As he approached it for a better look, he recognized it for what it was, a tent pole. He could see the tent pole and a bit of canvas, but the rest was buried beneath the fresh snowfall. He grabbed a nearby ice pick and chipped away at the ice to reveal the rest of the tent. Inside there was a blanket, a line of bags, and a pile of boots along with a map, some money, and a flask of vodka. There was also a plate of food, 
specifically salo, a calorie-dense pork fat ideal for consuming in the intense cold. He would later describe this sight. It was sliced up as if they were getting ready to have supper or something and didn't have time. After taking this in, he turned back to the entrance of the tent to leave and noticed something peculiar. There were slashes in the canvas, as if someone had ripped open the tent with a knife. Not from the outside, either. The knife marks came from inside the tent, as if someone had been desperately trying to cut their way out. Outside the tent, the strangeness continued. There were tracks in the snow, eight or nine distinct sets, all made by people wearing socks or nothing on their feet at all. What could have possibly made them flee their tent without so much as their boots in negative 20 degrees Celsius weather? Mikhail and the rest of his group hurriedly skied back downhill to tell the others what they'd seen. He brought the flask of vodka with him, and at dinner that night he proposed a toast to the missing student's health. As he lifted the drink to his lips, a volunteer next to Mikhail got his attention and said solemnly, Best not to drink to their health, but to their eternal peace. He was right, because the next day Mikhail and the rest of the search party found the first bodies. Unfortunately, they would not be the last. He described the grim sight. We approached a cedar tree, and when we were 20 meters away, we saw a brown spot. It was towards the right of the trunk. And when we got closer, we saw two corpses lying there. The hands and the feet were reddish-brown. These were the bodies of Yuri Doyshenko and Yuri Krivonyshenko, who had bitten off a piece of his own finger. The strange, horrible sights continued when they found Igor's body. He was fully dressed except for his shoes, lying face down in the snow. Zinaida was nearby, with an unusual red bruise along the side of her chest. The next body found was that of Rustam Slobodin, discovered on March 5th with a fractured skull, a broken watch, and dressed in a long-sleeve undershirt, sweater, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, and one single boot. The last four bodies were recovered almost three months later, only after the snow had finally melted. There, at the bottom of a ravine as winter gave way to spring, was the rest of the missing group. Nikolai's skull was fractured. Alexander's neck was twisted. Semon had broken ribs and a wound on the right side of his head. Yudmila's tongue was gone, and they both were missing their eyes, leaving only the empty sockets behind. The official cause of death for the Nine was hypothermia, but their strange injuries, the sliced open tent, their behavior before death, none of it seemed to add up. Without a satisfying explanation, people around the world began to do what spectators do best, try to fill in the blanks. Up next, we learn about the theories surrounding the Dyatlov Pass incident and all of its mysteries from government conspiracy to natural disaster and even the supernatural. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. The Soviet government looked into the case, investigating potential causes of the students' deaths, but their verdict was incredibly vague. The deaths were attributed to a combination of incompetence and a force of nature. Some Soviets also posted that the hikers were attacked by local Mansi people, but this theory did not hold any water and was motivated more by prejudice than any reasonable evidence. Valery Anyamov, a Mansi man, recalls how his father had helped with the search only to have suspicion turned on him and his community. He states, 
So many people around here were arrested, and a woman from another village who is no longer with us used to say that the secret police tortured them. I don't know if that is true, but they were certainly interrogated for weeks. Once the Soviet investigators realized there was no evidence against any of the Monsi people, they asked for their help continuing the search. It was due to aid from Monsi villagers that the four bodies were found in May, discovered only after a Monsi hunter spotted pieces of clothing that led the search down into the ravine. Some suggested that some other foul play had taken place. A group of hunters had attacked them or attempted robbers. Perhaps a lover's spat had gone horribly wrong. None of those ideas quite fit. It looked unlikely that a human assailant had been responsible at all, as their injuries went beyond the damage a person can do to another with blunt force trauma. So, what happened? The prevailing theory at the time was an avalanche, sudden and violent. They would have heard the snow shifting, the low rumble of collapse, and had just enough warning to run out of their tent, but not enough time to get dressed. But there was one problem with that hypothesis. There was no physical evidence of an avalanche in the area, no obvious debris, no damage to the tree line. Locals have also pointed out that no avalanches had occurred recently in the region, nor had there been any there before. In the absence of concrete answers, theories began to swirl ranging from reasonable to fantastical. One common thread is hypothermia, which would explain a lot of the strange behavior prior to their deaths. A symptom of extreme hypothermia is paradoxical undressing, wherein a person's brain falsely perceives the extreme cold as extreme heat. They then began to remove their clothes, unknowingly pushing themselves closer to death. Of course, that doesn't account for why the hikers would have left the warmth and safety of their tent in the first place. Yuri Kuncevic, who was only 12 when the tragedy first occurred, believes a military experiment of some kind was responsible for the deaths of the students. He still remembers how it felt when their bodies were discovered, even all these years later. The coffins were open, says Yuri, and I could see that the skin on their faces was a weird color, the color of bricks. There was nothing in the newspapers, but everyone was talking about it. We thought it must be some kind of state secret. Tatiana, Igor Dyatlov's sister, has not been satisfied with any of the official explanations either. You have seen for yourself, what kind of avalanche could there be when their tent was almost intact? A hurricane? Well, maybe, but it is possible to survive a hurricane. As for a snow slab which crushed their tent, that doesn't explain the injuries they had. And if it was just an ordinary hike which went wrong because of extreme weather conditions, well, those happen all the time. So why did it worry the highest authorities in the country? I think it means something extraordinary happened. One detail that has captured the minds of amateur sleuths is the reports of radiation detected on some of the bodies. This, according to proponents of the theory, points to the evidence of government testing in the area, perhaps involving some sort of radioactive weaponry. This quickly falls apart, however, due to the fact that the radiation levels were not high enough to be considered a cause of death. However, there may be additional evidence to support the government weapons testing idea. Another group of hikers, who set up their own camp about 50 kilometers away from the Dyatlov group, reported seeing strange lights in the sky that night. One of them wrote, A shining circular body fly over the village from the southwest to the northeast. The shining disk was practically the size of a full moon, a blue-white light surrounded by a blue halo. The halo brightly flashed like the flashes of distant lightning. When the body disappeared behind the horizon, the sky lit up in that place for a few more minutes. A local Monsi woman confirmed the appearance of bright objects in the sky, describing a strange sight of her own one night in February of 1959. We were coming back from the forest and we could see the village ahead of us. This bright, burning object appeared. It was wider at the front and narrower at the back, with a tail and there were sparks flying off it. That could very well have been a comet, but it's worth considering. 
Naturally, some UFO enthusiasts ran with these reports of strange lights in the sky and declared that the incident had been the result of alien abduction. There are over 70 different theories circulating about the events that took place on that fateful mountainside. From an attack by the Menk, a yeti-like forest creature of Monsi legend, to evil spirits, to an unsettling natural phenomenon called infrasound, in which naturally occurring wind patterns produce low-frequency sound waves that trigger inexplicable panic and paranoia. After the case was closed, it seemed like there would never be a definitive answer. But then, in 2019, Russian officials reopened the case with three theories in mind. An avalanche, a snow slab, or a hurricane. Again, however, the results were unsatisfactory. All the official investigators would say was that no criminal activity had taken place and that the hikers had died of hypothermia after something pushed them out of their tent. And that was that. It seemed like there would be no more answers. Sometimes, new ideas can come from surprising places. Last year, a vital key to the mystery was discovered with the help of, wildly enough, the movie Frozen, the same film that featured a singing snowman and Idina Menzel letting it go all over the place, also helped potentially unlock the secrets of the Dyatlov Pass incident, once and for all. Johan Gaume, head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory, was inspired by how well the movement of snow was animated in Disney's Frozen. Hoping to apply the animator's technique in his own work, he reached out to them and asked for the code. Gome traveled out to Hollywood to meet in person with the specialists who worked on the film's snow effects and then modified the animation code for his simulation models. This allowed him to more accurately test the impact of an avalanche on the human body and create a detailed simulation of the avalanche that could have taken place during the Dyatlov Pass incident. This allowed them to fill in some previous gaps, most notably the fact that most avalanche victims die of asphyxiation rather than blunt force trauma. However, there is a type of avalanche known as a slab avalanche, in which a dense slab of snow sits on top of a weaker slab until a trigger causes it to come crashing down. The cuts that the Dyatlov group made in the snow to protect their tent from the wind may have been just the trigger the snow slab needed. It wouldn't need to be especially large to be deadly and wouldn't leave behind the kind of physical evidence that a massive avalanche would have. Even a very small slab could have weighed hundreds of pounds, crushing bones and knocking people to the ground hard enough to kill. In the minds of many, the case is still far from closed, even in the face of this new evidence. Jim McElwain, a geohazards expert from Durham University in England, says that the natural disaster does not explain the footprints leading away from the tent. Those footprints indicate that the hikers were already partially undressed when they left, before hypothermia could have taken its hold. He states, if you're in that type of harsh environment, it's suicide to leave shelter without your clothes on. For people to do that, they must have been terrified by something. I assume that one of the most likely things is that one of them went crazy for some reason. I can't understand why else they would have behaved in that way unless they were trying to flee from someone who'd been tracking them. Gome himself has admitted that this new research, though promising, does not answer every lingering question. Personally, we do not believe that the mystery can ever be solved because no one survived to tell the story. What we did in our paper is to show the plausibility of the avalanche hypothesis based on solid physical and experimental evidence. Today, there is a granite memorial at the site that lists the names of the students and the date that they died, along with this inscription. In the memory of those who have gone and will never return, we have named this mountain pass in their honor, the Dyatlov Pass. And so, the mountain pass bears the name of the group's leader, commemorating the only people who will ever truly know what happened all those years ago. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. 
Tonight's writer was Addison Peacock. Our editor and musician is the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show. <laughs>